We're looking this morning at the prologue to John's Gospel, so I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John 1.1. The prologue goes through the first 18 verses of the first chapter, and it is one of the most rich passages in all of Scripture when it comes to revealing Jesus Christ. It's an extremely rich passage. It's kind of like chocolate cheesecake with chocolate sauce poured over the top. If you have a copy of uh, the outlines and would like to write in some comments, you can do that. Each of the four Gospels begins with an introduction to Jesus that places him in the historical setting of his earthly ministry. Matthew connected Jesus with David and with Abraham. Mark associated Jesus directly with John the Baptist. Luke recorded predictions of Jesus' birth. And John declared him to be the eternal Son of God at the beginning of his gospel. D.A. Carson wrote, The prologue of John's gospel summarizes how the word which was with God in the very beginning came into the sphere of time, history, tangibility. In other words, how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book is nothing other than an expansion of this theme, the theme set forth in the prologue. In the first five verses, we have uh, the the explanation of the pre-incarnate word. John began his gospel by locating Jesus before the beginning of his ministry before his virgin birth, even before creation. He identified Jesus as coexistent with God, the Father, and the Father's agent in providing creation and salvation. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Bible, of course, identifies many beginnings. The beginning that John spoke of was not really the beginning of something new, at a particular time. It was rather the time before anything that has come into existence began. The Bible does not teach a timeless state, either before creation or after the consummation of all things. Time is the way God and we measure events in relationship to one another. That is what time is, after all. Even before God created the universe, which we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word, God created the heavens and the earth, there was succession of events before the creation of the universe. We often refer to this pre-creation time as eternity past. And this is the time that John referred to here. At the beginning of this eternity, when there was nothing else, the word existed, John says in one, one. Obviously, the word word to which John referred was a title for God. Later in this verse, he identified the word as God. He evidently chose this title because it communicates the fact that the word was not only God, but the expression of God. A spoken or a written word expresses what is in the mind of the speaker or the writer. Likewise, Jesus, the Word, he's he's identified as the Word in verse 14, was not only God, but he was the expression of God to mankind. 
Jesus' life and ministry expressed to humankind what God wanted us to know. Jesus, or John's description of the word as with God shows that Jesus was, in one sense, distinct from God. He was the second person of the Trinity, who is distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit in the form of his subsistence. However, John was also careful to note that Jesus was, in another sense, fully God. He was not less God than the Father or the Spirit in his essence. Thus, John made one of the great Trinitarian statements in the Bible in this verse. In his essence, Jesus is equal with the Father, but he subsists as a separate person within the Godhead. Now, there's probably no perfectly adequate illustration of the Trinity in the natural world. Perhaps the egg is a good illustration, though not perfect. An egg consists of three parts, the shell, the yolk, and the white. Each part is fully egg, yet each has its own identity that that, that distinguishes it from the other parts. Uh, The human family is another illustration. Father, mother, child are all separate entities, yet each one is fully a member of its own family. Each has a different first name, but each has the same last name. So these are a couple illustrations that help us to understand, to some extent, uh, the Trinity and its nature. Now, this verse is important because Jehovah's Witnesses appeal to this verse, verse 1, to support their doctrine that Jesus was not fully God, but the highest created being. It's one of their favorite verses. They translate this verse... The word was a God. And grammatically, this is possible, since it's legitimate to supply the indefinite article, a, when no article is present in the Greek text. However, the translation here is definitely incorrect because it reduces Jesus to less than God. Jesus was not just a God. Other scriptures affirm Jesus' full deity. For instance, verse 2, verse 18, Philippians 2.6, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3, and many other passages make it clear that Jesus is fully God. He is equal with God in his essence. Here, the absence of the definite article was deliberate. It stresses the fact that the word was God. It puts the emphasis on the deity of the word. So it's really making a point that is exactly opposite from what the Jehovah's Witnesses say it is saying. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. The word was not only in the beginning and with God, verse 1, but he was also in the beginning with God. (laughs) This statement clarifies further that Jesus was with God before the creation of the universe. It's a further assertion of Jesus' deity. He did not come into existence at a point in time. He always existed. Moreover, Jesus did not become deity. He always was deity. 
verse 2 clarifies the revelation of verse 1 that is so concise and profound. Verse 3 goes on, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. John next explicitly declared what was implicit in the Old Testament use of the word word. Jesus was God's agent in creating everything that has come into existence. Other passages refer to his being the agent within the Trinity that did this. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Colossians 1, 16, Hebrews 1, 2, Revelation 3, 14. It was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who created the universe and all that it contains. However, John described the word as God's agent. The word did not act independently from the Father, see. Thus, John presented Jesus as under God's authority, but over every created thing in authority. Jesus' work of revealing God began with creation because all creation reveals God. Remember Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Remember Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was the source of life. Therefore, he could impart life to the things that he created. Every living thing owes its life to the creator, Jesus. Life for humankind constitutes light. Where there is life, there is light, metaphorically speaking. And where there is no light, there is darkness. John proceeded to show that Jesus is the source of spiritual life and light, as well as physical life and light. In other passages that we'll look at later in the book. Metaphorically, God's presence dispels the darkness of ignorance and sin by providing revelation and salvation. So John is using these terms both literally and metaphorically, see. Jesus did this in the incarnation when he became a man. Verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. As light shines in the darkness, so Jesus brought the revelation and salvation of God to humanity in its fallen and lost condition. He did this in the incarnation. As the word of God brought light to the chaos before creation... So Jesus brought light to fallen mankind when he became a man. Furthermore, the light that Jesus brought was superior to the darkness that existed both physically and spiritually. The darkness did not overcome and consume the light, but the light overcame the darkness. God did not view the light, or the world rather, as a stage on which two equal and opposing forces did battle. He was not a philosophical dualist that uh, saw, light, saw light and darkness, good and evil, conflicting in the world and uh, competing with one another. Though those things do exist, of course. Uh, That was not his view. He viewed Jesus as superior to the forces of darkness that sought to overcome him but could not. And this gives people hope. 
The forces of light are for stronger than the forces of darkness. The light overcame the darkness. John was here anticipating the outcome of the story that he would tell. Specifically, he was looking forward to Calvary. Though darkness continues to prevail, the light can overcome it. We are on the winning side, you see, as those who have light and who belong to the light. Now, throughout these introductory verses, verses 1 through 5, John was clearly hinting at parallels between what Jesus did physically in the creation, Genesis 1, and what he did spiritually through his incarnation, John 1. These parallels continue through the gospel, as do the figures of light and darkness. Those figures appear in the creation account. They appear in the description of what Jesus did during his incarnation. Light represents both revelation and salvation. Likewise, darkness stands for ignorance and sin. Verses 6 through 8 give us the witness of John the Baptist. John the Apostle, the writer of this book, introduced John the Baptist because John the Baptist bore witness to the light, to Jesus. John the Baptist was both a model evangelist, pointing those in darkness to the light, and a model witness, providing an excellent example for believers who would follow him. John the Baptist introduced the light into a dark world. He inaugurated Jesus' ministry. Therefore, mention of him was appropriate at the beginning of the Apostle John's account of Jesus' ministry. Verse 6 says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. By introducing John the Baptist, the writer stressed that God had sent him. He was a prophet in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets who bore witness to the light. He was a man, in contrast to the Word, who was God. Verse 7, he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all men might believe through him. John the Baptist was the first of many witnesses to the light that, the, that John the Apostle identified in this gospel. In his collected essays, an Englishman named Augustine Birrell tells of traveling through what was then the wild, remote parts of Lancashire in northern England. He says that the people had a reputation for being belligerent, heavy drinkers in that region. But when Birrell visited them, he found them to be temperate, kind, and hospitable. So he asked a local miner, how did this great change happen? And tipping his cap solemnly as a token of respect, the worker replied, there came a man among us once, and his name was John Wesley. The testimony of one man had changed an entire community. In fact, he changed all of England. I wonder if anyone has used your name that way lately. John the Baptist bore witness to the light of God's revelation, but also to the person of the light of the world. This gospel stresses the function of John the Baptist as a witness to the light. John the Baptist's ultimate purpose was eliciting belief in Jesus. That was, what, that was also John the Evangelist's purpose in writing this book. We find in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Consequently, John the Baptist's 
witness is an important part of the argument of the fourth gospel, what John is trying to present. It was not immediately apparent to everyone that Jesus was the light. John needed to identify him as such to them, and we'll find him doing that later in this chapter. Verse 8, he was not the light, John, but came that he might bear witness of the light. Perhaps the writer stressed the fact that John the Baptist was not the light because some people continued to follow John as his disciples long after he died. We read about this in the book of Acts, that there were disciples of John the Baptist even after Jesus had died and been raised from the dead. John the Baptist's function was clearly to testify that Jesus was the light. He was not the light himself. Now, the reason the writer referred to John the Baptist in this prologue seems obvious. As the word came, into be, came to bring light to humanity, so John was sent by God to illuminate the identity of the light to people. The light came to bring salvation and revelation, but the witness to the light came to identify the light. Verses 9 through 13 go on and say more about the appearance of the light. The first section of the prologue, verses 1 through 5, presents the pre-incarnate word. The second section, verses 6 through 8, identifies the forerunner of the word's earthly ministry, John the Baptist's earthly ministry. The third section introduces the ministry of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Verse 9, there was... There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Now, there are two possible interpretations of this verse. One is that the true light enlightens every person who comes into the world. The other is that the true light comes into the world and enlightens everyone. Now, that's slightly different. The second option seems preferable since the incarnation is so much in view in the context of this statement. The point is that Jesus, as the light, affects everyone. Everyone lives under the spotlight of God's illuminating revelation in Jesus Christ since the incarnation. Since Jesus Christ has come, there is light in the world that never was there before. His light clarifies the sinfulness and spiritual need of human beings. Those who respond to this convicting revelation positively experience salvation. Those who reject it and turn from the light will end up in outer darkness, Jesus said. They will experience eternal damnation. Now, the Quakers refer, or prefer, rather, the first of the two interpretations that I've just mentioned. They prefer to understand this verse as saying... Um, the true light enlightens every person who comes into the world. And they use this verse to support their doctrine of the inner light, which you may have heard about. They believe that God has placed some revelation in the heart of every person, apart from the scriptures. A person can elicit that revelation by meditation. Sit quietly, and God will bring that revelation that he has placed in your heart to the forefront. Now, this is not general revelation, but special revelation, like Scripture. Their view is very close to the charismatic belief that God gives new revelation today. 
non-charismatics see no basis in Scripture for this view that God gives new revelation today. We believe that while God now illuminates the revelation that he has previously given, he does not give new revelation now. Now, the word true in this verse is one that John used repeatedly in this gospel, and we'll run into it and have to comment on it in the future. True here refers to what is the ultimate form of the genuine article. The ultimate form of the genuine article. The real as opposed to the counterfeit. John did not mean that Jesus was truthful. Though he was, of course. Jesus was not only a genuine revelation from God, but he was the ultimate revelation from God. And that is what true, as John uses it in his gospel, implies. John also used the word world in a negative sense in this gospel. Usually it's in a negative connotation that the word world appears, and that's true in this verse. It does not refer to this planet as a planet, but to the inhabited earth fallen in sin and in rebellion against God. It is a world darkened by sin. It is the people in the world who are sinners that are in view when he speaks of the world. Now, verse 10 goes on. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus entered the world that he had created in the incarnation. We've celebrated that at Christmas. Yet the world did not recognize him for who he was because people's minds had become darkened by the fall and by sin. Even the light of the world was incomprehensible to people because their darkness was so great. The light shines on everyone, even though most people do not see it. John drew attention to the world by repeating this word three times in this verse. However, the meaning shifts a bit from the world and all that is in it in the first two occurrences of the word to the people in the world who came in contact with Jesus in the third occurrence. Verse 11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. When Jesus visited his own creation, the creatures whom he had created did not receive him, but rejected him. The specific people whom Jesus visited in the incarnation, of course, were the Jewish people. They were his own in a double sense. He had not only created them, but also brought them to himself out from the nations. He'd redeemed them in the Exodus to be a special people in the world. Jesus had created the earth like a house, similar to a house. And when he visited it in the incarnation, he found it inhabited by people who refused to acknowledge him for who he was, the owner of the house, the creator of the house. In the incarnation, Jesus did not come as an alien to this planet. He came home to the place that he had made. Rejection hurts. When presidential candidate Adelaide Stevenson conceded the election in 1952, he said he felt like a grown man who had just stubbed his toe. He said, quote, it hurts too much to laugh, but I'm too old to cry. And, uh, of course, when we feel the deep hurt of rejection... We can look to Jesus because he understands how we feel. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. He was rejected. 
throughout his life. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The contrast with rejection, of course, is acceptance. Not everyone rejected Jesus when he came, some accepted him. And to these he gave as a gift the authority to become God's children. Receiving Jesus consists of believing in his name. Believing, therefore, equals receiving, you see. His name summarizes all that Jesus is. To believe in his name means to accept the revelation of who Jesus is that God has given. Because that revelation includes the fact that Jesus died as a substitute sacrifice in the place of sinners, belief involves reliance on Jesus for salvation rather than on self. It does not just mean believing facts intellectually a person has to have the facts in order to exercise faith. It involves volitional trust as well as information. Now, in one sense, all human beings are the children of God. We are all his creatures. He's created us all, and so in that sense, we are his children. But the Bible speaks of the children of God primarily as those who are his spiritual children by faith in Jesus Christ. The new birth brings uh, believers into a new family with new relationships. Clearly, John was referring to this family of believers since he wrote that believing in Jesus gives people the right to become God's children. The New Testament speaks of the believer as a child of God and as a son of God. Technically, it describes us as children by birth, the new birth, And it describes us as sons by adoption. But John consistently referred to believers only as the children of God in his gospel. He did not call us the sons of God, though we are that. That's just an aspect of who we are that John did not mention in his gospel. In this gospel, Jesus is the only son of God. Children draws attention to community of nature, whereas sons emphasizes rights and privileges. When a person offers you a gift that has cost him or her much, like at Christmas time, it does not become yours until you receive it from that person. The beautifully wrapped package and the outstretched hand of the giver will do the receiver no good until he or she reaches out and takes it. Likewise, reception of God's gracious gift of eternal life is necessary for a person to benefit from it. Receiving a gift from someone else does not constitute a meritorious work, and the Bible never regards it as a work. It is simply a response to the work of another. As finite creatures, we sense that our earthly life and eternity Our eternal destiny are somehow somehow bound up with our creator. And most religions of the world represent man's effort to reach up to God and become acceptable to him. In China, for example, devout pilgrims ascend a sacred mountain called Taishan. They climb 7,000 steps to its summit, first passing through the, quote, middle gate, 
and then through, quote, heaven's southern gate. Finally, they reach one of the most beautiful buildings in all of China, the Temple of the Azure Cloud. And here they offer sacrifices which the worshipers believe will gain God's favor. Such effort represents great religious fervor, and, but also futility. For it brings the devotee no closer to God than when he mounted the first step. Are you still climbing endless steps of self-effort that lead nowhere? Why not take that one all-important step of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's that step that leads to heaven. And I invite you to do that this morning if you've never done it before. Verse 13 goes on, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who, of course, refers to those who believe in Jesus' name, verse 12. Their new life in, as children of God comes from God. It does not come because of their blood, namely their physical ancestors. Many of the Jews believed that because they were Abraham's descendants, they were automatically the children of God. And Paul dealt with that in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Jesus dealt with it in John 8. Even today, some people think that the faith or works of their ancestors, their parents, their grandparents, perhaps, guarantees their salvation. But, of course, that is not true. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. New life does not come because of physical desire either. The will of the flesh. No amount of wanting it and striving for it will bring it. The only thing that will is belief in Jesus. Third, new spiritual life does not come because of a human decision either. Specifically, the choice of a husband to produce a child. It comes as the result of a spiritual decision to trust in Jesus Christ. So, new spiritual life does not come from any of these sources, but from God himself. Ultimately, it's the result of God's choice, not man's, as Ephesians, 4 verse, or Ephesians 1 verse 4 makes very clear. Therefore, the object of our faith must be God rather than our heritage or race, rather than our works, and rather than our own initiative. Now, this section of the prologue in these verses that we've just looked at, verses 9 through 13, summarizes the theological issue involved in the Incarnation. It is, in a sense, a miniature of the whole gospel. And so we'll find John developing these thoughts as he goes through the rest of the book. But verses 14 through 18 wrap up the prologue and describe further the Incarnation of the Word. John's return to the Word, capital W, in verse 14 from verse 1, introduces new revelation about this person. Though still part of the prologue, the present section focuses on the incarnation of the Word. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The, world who, the Word who existed equal with God before anything else came into being became human. This is the most concise statement of the Incarnation. Verse 14. He did not just appear to be a man. 
He actually became one. Yet he maintained his full deity. The word became usually implies a complete change. But this was not true in Jesus' case. He did not cease to be God when he became a man. Flesh in Scripture has a literal meaning, namely material human flesh, my body. Uh, But it also has a a metaphorical meaning, referring to human nature. Here John used it in the metaphorical sense. God the Son assumed a human, though not sinful, nature. He became fully human, sin apart. And the verse says that he dwelt among us. Jesus literally lived among his disciples. As God's presence dwelt among the Israelites in the tabernacle in a spiritual sense, so it lived among them in the person of Jesus Christ temporarily. Solomon thought it it was incredible that God would dwell on the earth. You remember in his prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said, Can God indeed dwell on the earth? But that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. For the first time, John equated the word and Jesus in this verse, though he does not use the name Jesus. But what he says about the word clearly refers to Jesus. But this is the last reference to the word word in the gospel. John never refers to Jesus as the word again. From now on, John referred to the word by his historical name, Jesus, and to the personal terms, Father and Son. The glory that John and the other disciples beheld as eyewitnesses refers to the godlike characteristics of Jesus. Jesus' character and qualities came through Jesus as a human son resembles his human father, except that in the likeness of Jesus... The image was exact. Jesus perfectly represented the Father. The disciples saw Jesus' glory clearest at the transfiguration. His relationship to the Father was unique, and so was his similarity to the Father. Relationship and similarity were unique. Jesus' relationship to God as his Son was unique also, even though we can become children of God. Jesus was the Son of God in a different sense than you and I are. He is eternal and of the same essence as his Father. Only begotten in this verse does not mean that there was a time when Jesus was not. And then the Father brought him into being. It means he was God's unique Son. Particularly, grace and truth marked the glory of God that Jesus manifested. Grace in this context refers to graciousness, goodness, and truth means integrity, truthfulness. The incarnation was the greatest possible expression of God's grace to humankind. It was also the best way to communicate truth accurately to human understanding. Nevertheless, many people who encountered Jesus during his ministry failed to see these things. Neither grace nor truth are knowable apart from God who has revealed them through Jesus Christ. 
Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist was another witness beside John the Apostle and the other disciples of Jesus who testified to Jesus' person. Warren Wiersbe observed, John the Baptist is one of six persons named in the Gospel of John who gave witness that Jesus is God. John the Baptist is the first of six other individuals. These other individuals are Nathaniel, Peter, the blind man who was healed, Martha, and Thomas. And if you add the Lord himself, you have seven clear witnesses to who Jesus was in this gospel. Even though John the Baptist was older, six months older than Jesus, and began his ministry before Jesus, he acknowledged Jesus' superiority to himself. Jesus' superiority rested in his preexistence with the Father and, therefore, his deity. Verse 16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. The glory of God that Jesus manifested was full of grace and truth. Verse 14, From the fullness of that grace, all people have received one expression of grace after another. I think probably John intended to mean two things here. There are several possible interpretations of the phrase grace upon grace. The problem is the meaning of the preposition, upon, here. Uh, Some interpreters believe that John was saying grace follows grace, as ocean wave follows wave, washing believers with successive blessings. And that's true. It's true that God keeps pouring out his inexhaustible grace on the believer through Jesus Christ, but is this what John was saying here? A second view is that the preposition means instead of, as it often does elsewhere. According to this interpretation, John meant that God's grace was, God's grace through Jesus Christ replaces the grace that he bestowed through Moses when he gave the law. Now, the advantage of that view is that uh, verse 17 seems to continue this thought. It seems to me that both things could have been in John's mind. He could have been thinking of God's grace in Christ, superseding his grace through Moses and continuing to supply the Christian day by day. And... uh, I tend to take that interpretation myself. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Whereas Moses was the individual through whom God gave his law to his people, Exodus, Jesus Christ is the one through whom he manifested abundant grace and truth in the incarnation. This statement shows the superiority of the gracious dispensation that Jesus introduced over the legal dispensation that Moses inaugurated. The legal age of Moses, of course, contained grace, and the gracious age contains law. Earlier in our 9 o'clock service, Percy was pointing out the inadequacy of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Every Old Testament sacrifice is a testimony to God's grace under the law. He provided the means whereby people could come to him through the sacrificial system. John was contrasting the dominant characteristics of these eras in which God dealt with people. The old economy under Moses, the new economy under Christ. Law expresses God's standards. 
Grace provides help so that we can do the will of God. Verse 18, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. There are many passages of Scripture that record various individuals seeing God, of course. Moses saw God, Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, John saw God on the island of Patmos. Those instances involved visions, theophanies, anthropomorphic representations of God, God in human, described in human terms, rather than encounters with the unveiled spiritual essence of God. No man has seen God in his essence and survived. The way we know what God is like is not by viewing his essence. No one can do that and live. But God sent his own unique son, his only begotten, from his most intimate presence, his bosom, to reveal God to people. In the system that Moses inaugurated, no one could see God, but Jesus has revealed him now to everyone. Note also that John called Jesus God again here. Now it says that Jesus explained God. He explained God in the sense of revealing him. The Greek word is a word from which we get the word exegete here. The Son has exegeted, has explained or interpreted the Father to mankind. The reference to Jesus being in the bosom of the Father softens and brings affection to the idea of Jesus explaining the Father to people. The nature of God is in view here, not, of course, his external appearance. What Jesus revealed was the nature of God. In an article in Moody Monthly, Frank Fairchild told of a beautiful fresco on the ceiling of a palace in Rome. It was painted by the artist Guido Reni in 1614, and it was one of the most impressive works of his day. But the masterpiece could not be fully appreciated because palace visitors had to crane their necks in order to see it. They had to look at it upside down all the time. To solve this problem, a large mirror was placed on the floor beneath the painting. And this enabled viewers to study its reflection and more fully appreciate its beauty. A Fairchild went on to make this observation. Jesus Christ does precisely that for us when we try to get some notion of God. He interprets God to our dull hearts. In him, God becomes visible and, and intangible to us. Now, John ended this prologue as he began it with a reference to Jesus' deity. He wanted to be, there to be no question in the minds of his readers about Jesus' deity. He began by saying the word was with God, verse, four, verse 1. And he concluded by saying that he was at the Father's side. This indicates the intimate fellowship and love and knowledge that the Father and the Son shared. It also gives us confidence that the revelation of the Father that Jesus revealed is accurate. John's main point in this prologue was that Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. Let me review that, repeat it. 
John's main point in these verse 18 verses is that Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. Later, John described himself in this book as reclining on Jesus' bosom in the upper room. You remember? At the Lord's Supper, chapter 13. John's gospel is an accurate revelation of the word because John enjoyed intimate fellowship with the word just as Jesus was an an accurate revelation of God that came from intimate relationship to him. As John reclined on Jesus' breast, so Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. As John has revealed Jesus, so Jesus has revealed God. Father, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture that helps us to understand our Savior. It gives us new insights into him. And we pray that you will help us to give him the glory in our lives that he so richly deserves because he has revealed you to us, that he is the very word of God to our ears, to our eyes, to our lives. Thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.